Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Mastering Agility. Uh, this is Jim, your host, and I've got Sunder with me as always, and we have an awesome guest to bring to you today. Um, Sunder, let's start with you before we let our guests introduce themselves. What's new in your world? Not much, dude. I've been teaching a PSPOA course today. It was good stuff so far. Tomorrow is going to be day two, so it's a good start of the week. Awesome. What's new on your side? Yeah, I mean, it's... it. And I had a little case of the Mondays today as we were talking about before we hit record. But no, it's it's been really good. Lot Getting a lot of little things done. I've been TV shopping. It's Black Friday. So uh, we just got some painting done. So it's been time to maybe upgrade the TV from the one that we had in there and doing a little bargain shopping, I think. So I'm excited any, to have any particular things that you, either of you go wild on usually in black Friday. Are, are there any recurring things that you buy? Not me. Like I was mm-hmm. proud over the last couple years. I didn't buy anything last year. Like I didn't go to a single store. It's been years since I've waited in line for anything. And it only was coincidental that me wanting a new TV and needing one for, for a living room, um, coincides with black friday but yeah i try really hard to resist the urge of buying stuff i don't need how about you brendan oh yeah i'm I'm actually very proud i used to be a a frequent early morning black friday shopper like the crazy person that gets up at 4 a.m to stand in line at best buy uh in the last like seven years that's completely fallen away and now i just bargain shop the whole year when i need something as opposed to waiting for that chaos Yeah, yeah. I think we can thank Amazon a lot for kind of changing the nature of Black Friday and turning it from yeah. a twelve-hour frenzy of people getting trampled to maybe just a whole month of consumerism <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah. Let's spread that yeah. love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Less pain, but more money. I've actually yeah. seen a lot of shops or you know um, suppliers call it Black Month. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have friends and family who work in retail right now and uh, like uh, our guest does. And, you know, it's this is their crunch time. You know, this is the equivalent of running to the Super Bowl. And there's all types of work efforts that, uh, you know, have a finish line of the holiday season every year. And it kind of the holiday season for a lot of retail in the U.S. starts mid-November and goes all the way to January 2nd, kind of. What do you, so before we get into anything, yeah. because now I think we're already starting to touch on work topics, but um, I'd like to introduce <laughs> our, our guest, which is somebody I've known for at least, I think, five or six years. We work together and we've stayed in touch over the years and routinely just check in. And it was awesome to walk into a product management meetup a couple months ago and see a friendly face. So, Brendan, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, so I'm Brendan Gardner. I am a senior manager of product at Lowe's for finance technology. Uh, so uh, that's the work side of me. I'm a husband, two kids. Uh, I like to say I'm a purveyor of multiple hobbies. Uh, that's where my uh, attention uh, seeking behavior comes out. And I just go after everything a little bit at a time. So currently I'm in the midst of relearning French. And I think I'm 
still technically considered playing the piano, but I bet that, that one's starting to fall by the wayside and I'll, to be replaced by a new hobby soon. Nice. Um, but yeah, so yeah, Jim and I will go, go back a handful of years now. And, uh, he was, I have to say, uh, probably my favorite scrum master I got to work with. I will say that at the time. I guess that's high praise. I mean, I, I mean, I will take it. Like, so, Brandon, one thing you probably don't know is many of the stories that I've told on this podcast and that I tell regularly in class is a way to kind of make a a practice or a technique or a philosophy real comes from our work together. And we didn't work together for that long, but every week of the project and company we were working at felt like a month anywhere else, or maybe even a quarter anywhere else because of the culture, the technology, the quality of the people we had around us. And yeah. yeah. And like, those are all the good stories in my opinion. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So we've got a couple light topics that, that we want to get into, but here's one thing that I know people want to want to hear is how does someone like you spend your week? Like, what are some of the big things that would be kind of a week in the life of someone working at a large company in, in a product role like yours? Oh, wow. That is, um, I'm going to give my favorite product answer. It depends. Uh, but I'll give my, uh, my average, uh, and you know, currently in just, for those listening, right? It depends on what stage of the product you're in, in the life cycle really is going to vary what that week to week, day to day looks like. Uh, we're in a macro project phase right now. So we are sunsetting a massive 30 year old enterprise platform and building a new one underneath it. And so as you can hopefully ascertain, that's a very different set of lifestyle factors in your day to day than it would be in a run state or even in an early discovery state. Uh, and so currently I spend probably a solid half of my time in testing meetings. And so testing full end-to-end suite functionality from edge systems to downstream systems to data quality to manipulated scenarios, uh, you know, basically running this platform through its paces scenario by scenario. Uh, It's honestly going to pick up soon. It's going to be more than half. We'll be close to 75% daily for a couple uh, months. And then otherwise, behind that, I'm actually running through net new stuff. And so coordinating across the enterprise, things that we'd like to do for an enterprise scale that we don't do yet. Uh, and so a lot of that is kind of initial discovery, pain point analysis, and uh, honestly, just enterprise coordination. So we spend a lot of time, you can imagine, in a very fragmented enterprise so company that's been around for a hundred years, there are a lot of cooks in this kitchen. Uh, and unfortunately there's not a lot of uh, sous chefs. They're all chefs and it makes life a little challenging to coordinate through the, but honestly that chaos, that ambiguity, it's what I thrive in. So I love getting into that whirlwind of fun. Um, but yeah, lots of meetings, unfortunately. So, uh, I, I wish uh, I had a perfect answer of like, oh, only 10% of my time is in meetings and I get to do all this fun customer journey discovery and, and interviews and all the other fun stuff I'd love to get to as a product manager. But at this state of the product and the project specifically of its life cycle is testing. Uh, but honestly, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? That's where you finally get to prove out, did you do the first steps mm. right? Uh, and for a scale this big, that's exciting to find 
all of the little rocks that you at 10,000 feet looked like a tiny little pebble. It only turns out once you're on the ground that that's quite a boulder to get around. So I'm curious with the focus on testing and what's your opinion on who's responsible for testing? Because you know, the easy answer is it depends. Another easy answer is testing's everyone's job. But how do you actually see it playing out when you think about people like yourself? You have vendors, I'm sure. You have employees. You have different parts of, uh, of the user community. Give, give me some high-level thoughts on testing and like where that tends to fall from an accountability standpoint. Well, I have to say in a finance world, it's actually probably the most straightforward answer because at the end of the day, it's who's going to go to jail if we put out financial statements that are incorrect. Uh, So there is ultimate accountability in the financial business organization for a platform like this. Uh, But when it comes to real testing, it is an all hands on deck activity. And so uh, I think it can vary greatly on the platform you're in, but my take on testing is, and just in anything product is super pragmatic, right? Are we achieving the outcome we set to achieve? Are we providing a better experience? And are we thinking of iterations to development? Mm -hmm. And if I can facilitate and manage that across the various stakeholders inside a testing event, it's an, it's a win Mm -hmm. for me. Uh, That way we don't get bogged down in the weeds of this weird corner case. We're not getting bogged down in this connection pattern. We're did we do the thing we set out to do? And if we didn't, it's very binary. Then we start adding backlog. Then we can start adding context to the things we didn't know or didn't understand or, or you know skipped over. But that's where I think product probably plays the best role in testing is you're the glue, right? You, you know to interface with the stakeholders. You know how to interface with your business. You know how to interface with customers. You can translate. And I know that's a, a very cliche product is... Well, you can translate between different groups, but in testing, that's where you shine, right? That is where that really becomes paramount uh, or else you just start, the teams just talk past each other the whole day. And then you end the day scratching your head, what in the world did we accomplish? Uh, So if you can be that translator and you can be that facilitator to achieve those thin sliced outcomes, then it's a great, great testing event, in my opinion. And you're super adamant and clear on how important testing is. Yeah, testing seems to be one of the first things that's being skipped in many organizations. And why, at what point did it become so clear to you that we have to perform this, we have to keep this ball rolling because that is where, as you say, the rubber meets the road? So my philosophy on testing shifted hard in... I actually give you the timeline is probably 2015 and at the company that, well, I didn't work for the company at the time. Uh, I was a, a client of them and they came in and really showed me how an agile team operates. Uh, and that includes breakdown. It includes card writing, acceptance criteria, testing, automated testing, manual testing, regression suites, and really opened my eyes up to, how much confidence I had as a product manager pushing the button to go. When I went into production, I slept well. I wasn't up worried about things, right? I could roll this out to a huge swath of our customer base. And at the time I worked for a fortune 50 pharmaceutical manufacturer. Uh, And so you can imagine every day on that platform was 
basically Black Friday in terms of volume. And so you, and it was in the course of 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. So base pharmacies closed, all the reordering took place, that thing had to hum. And so now we were building an offshoot application for that, but it was still interfacing with that beast of a Black Friday volume. I could go to bed every day, not worried about it. We could release on a Tuesday. Uh, and that really did become, that actually carried over to where Jim and I met is today's just a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of our, our entire mantra. And testing is what really shook that free for me is I was used to the very long waterfall test program mentality. Uh, worked today, A and F for six plus years. We did huge order management implementations. You get these giant test scripts you go through and there's hundreds of people sitting in a room. And then the thing went live and you spent six months fixing everything. Uh, and then I learned at this place, it was, that wasn't the right way to do it and learned how to, how important testing is in so many ways. Uh, and it's one of those, if you don't have somebody to do it, roll up your sleeves and do it yourself because yeah. it's got to get done. There's uh... As I'm listening to you tell the story, I'm remembering conversations you and I had over over uh, the years when we we worked together. And one of them is I used to come into teams and I had left a, a company where I was being introduced to new teams like every 90 days. So I got really good at being the new guy and, you know, coming in and not disrupting things, but asking a lot of questions and trying to show value. And I remember I hit the company, uh, the team area when, when I joined your area. And the first thing I did is, where's your bug backlog? Where's your backlog of broken stuff? And I remember the quizzical looks from the developers and they're like, what, what do you mean? I'm like, you know, the, where's your Jira board or your, your wall of bugs or your tech debt backlog. And one of the developers on the, in, on the team walked up to the wall and they're like, well, here's, here's our two bugs. I'm like, no, 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 not the two you're currently working. Like the, the other ones. And then we had a good laugh because that's it. And I said, holy crap, you got to tell me, how did you do this? And it was what Brennan's talking about is this group. And it wasn't just this group. It was a cultural thing when you had software artisans and craftsmen to constantly fix errors, to fix deployment errors, to fix compile errors, to pay off bugs and debt constantly and often and quickly. And I was like, I was gobsmacked. I'm like, wow, I got to know how this happens. Like what type of work went in a year ago or 18 months ago to make it like this today? And then also, and I'm curious if you two would agree with me, is once you see something like that, you want to recapture it again. And you, you, your bar for what you tolerate goes up and it, it, it's very hard to get it to come down again. And when teams tell me, well, that's not possible, I, I can tell them I've seen it, not just once, not just twice, but I've seen it many times. And I think that, well, that's what helps people like us who have seen a lot of different things. Like, I, f- I feel like the old movie trope, like, I've been around, man, I've seen some things. But have you had this happen, Brennan, where you've seen what is possible somewhere and you carry that with you and it it alters both what maybe you tolerate and then also how you help an organization or team or department who's not anywhere close to that move forward. Uh, yeah, that actually has happened here at Lowe's currently. Uh, we have very old mainframe technology that still lives on in various avenues. And as you can imagine, mainframe was not a heavily test automation candidate uh, when it 
was brought forward. And to this day, people still just go, well, it's mainframe, right? We'll, we'll test everything around it. We'll wrap it. We'll do all this other stuff. We were spending an inordinate amount of time running tests in our lower environment for other systems to just basically move files through these massive mainframe programs. And I sat down with our dev team, and this was one of the first times I actually traveled into our corporate office uh, in North Carolina and had a conversation with multiple developers three times that day over whiteboards because I had that expectation. I knew what was actually possible. And I was getting a, we can't do that. And I'm like, you can, you're just not thinking about it the way you need to think about it, right? We have to think about this thing differently than, you know, running some sort of Selenium UI based test program, right? You can't just go hook something up, pump through some UI platform and then poof, uh, test automation, right? You've got to think differently about how we're doing it. Needless to say, we're about eight components, eight slices in of that test automation journey. They took that testing down from three weeks to about two days right now. Uh, And so didn't help anybody in the end-to-end other than our team, but we've been able to scale now and show them like, hey, we can get this validation. And you can imagine financial data, right? We're the last stop in almost every single train that takes off at Lowe's. And so when something happens way upstream, they've got to make sure it trickles all the way into the financial systems correctly. We can turn that test around now in 48 hours with multiple programs as opposed to multiple weeks. We've sped up the entire enterprise lifecycle now. And so that fast feedback, it's still... Not as fast as I'd love it to be, but now we actually can talk about fast feedback. Uh, and so that that carry through that lesson from before is exactly what I did. I sat down and talked with them. I'm like, let me tell you about a time we had to take the actual bowels of Java program apart and able to run tests for a Oracle uh, integration platform inside of a company. And they were like, well, if, you, if they can do that, we can do that. And I'm like, exactly. Like, you can. Right. You were very smart humans, and sure enough, they figured yeah. it out. Now, yeah, but that's what you see, I think, way too often where people are getting numbed out or, you know, uh, putting back in, into their little box, if you will. People get hired because they're smart, they're capable, they're intelligent, they know exactly what to do. And the moment that they hit the floor, they're being told what to do and how to do it, how to run it. And that's kind of what you were referring to as well, Jim. After a while, you just get numb to it. You you create a higher tolerance for what is acceptable, what's not. Well, after a couple of years, what initially you thought you would never be able to actually cope with, you are able to cope with, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. I mean, something that I was wondering about earlier is – sorry to, to steal your thunder here, uh, Jim. Uh, but if you would do everything all over again, what's the first thing that you would bring back? Honestly, it'd be test automation. That would be the very first thing I'd bring back to any team I go work in. No matter how mature or immature that organization is, I'd bring that into the next place I go to. Because without that, everything else we do, and I know that's a very execution-oriented answer to that. Um, and I know a lot of people go, oh, product strategy, product. Like, It doesn't matter how good your strategy is if you can't build software. And, and you have to build something, right? Whether it's a, a click-through prototype, whether it's a working an actual working application that you put in the hands of users. If you can't do that, it doesn't matter how good your strategy is. If you can't get things to customers to interface with and test automation to me is the, 
is the linchpin of that program uh, because it speeds up the rest of everything. Uh, and that's where, to me, like I have, you're right, Sander, you can easily see that tolerance threshold shifting, right? Like before that would be a, I need this now. It's been a year, right? It took a year to get to where we're at because we still live in a real world where real needs are needing to go out, real value of other things have to happen. And so you do have to make those kind of conscious trade-offs. But I think if you're still true to the spirit of what you're pushing for, you can accept that tolerance without accepting a different version of you uh, that shouldn't hopefully create too much uh, dissonance in your own Let brain. me give you a hypothetical but very plausible scenario. So you, you join a... A team or or a platform that's got one of these long lived products. I'm I'm not going to say it's a 30 year mainframe or an 80 year mainframe or something like that, but it's something that's been around a while. And you've got a mountain of test automation debt. Things that the team says we'd like to, you know, we agree with you, Brendan. We want to move towards this. But you also have a backlog and you're getting pressure on this new product to get new things out the door. So what's your general approach for, you know, when you have a mountain um, of automation debt and you're also building some new things at the same time? Like, do you have a strategy for that? I do. Um, It's a hard line strategy (laughs) for the most part. Uh, So I'm a fairly easy flowing person when it comes to teams and, and development of any kind, because it's you've got to be very pragmatic to your approaches. But I won't be for this. And so I will be a bull until it gets done. I will basically burn every piece of cloud I've ever earned inside of a company to make sure that that stance is known. But basically, a minimum of 20% of the development effort gets blocked until it's done. And so kind of like what people do typically for a traditional support model inside a running product team, right? 80 new, 20 support. I also take that 20 in addition. So now it's 60, 20, 20 split. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can take that support down even further with, because we maybe don't need the full 20, right? Maybe it's more 60, 40, but then I start building a business case behind it, right? When you talk test automation, you talk quality, you talk loss of brand reputation. Every time a bug hits production, there is a negative impact, whether it's, minuscule this time, or it's compounding four bugs later, right? There is a material impact to your bottom line when you produce bad code. Um, It's a very easy business case to show them to take that slowdown to increase both velocity and quality later while still producing some tangible things. Obviously, there has to be a, a truth to that, right? You can't just napkin math that forever. You got to put some hard line data to it. But that story is a very easy story to get leadership to buy into because how many of us have taken that phone call from a C-suite person on a Saturday morning because there's a bug in production? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Almost everybody's had that spot. And so Mm -hmm. the CEO doesn't want to take that phone call. I don't want to take that phone call. And that's just anecdotally, right? You start talking the real data, it's a pretty easy story to get behind as long as you can still iteratively produce value throughout the rest of the life cycle. You can typically dual track that inside of a team. And I will say, little technically, having really good branch code management makes that really easy. 
Uh, if you don't have a good Git flow strategy when you're trying to write test automation into a system like this, it'll fall apart and become a snake's den real quickly. Yeah. Uh, but from a, that was one of the things I learned from that team we worked in is their ability to Git flow was yeah beyond normal. <laughs> I, I agree. Like having technical, high quality technical people on the team that also value these things makes it so much easier because then you're not convincing the team and selling the benefit of this to the team and outside the team. It's like you're much more aligned and it, it gets easier because what I found is then the smart technical people help you make the case to make this investment. And it is an investment, but my, one of my biggest challenges has always been around automation and not even just test automation, but different types of automation, whether it's paths automation or backups or testing, et cetera, is it's like getting people that maybe don't feel like they have enough money or don't have enough money to invest in insurance or something. It's like, well, that's, that's something for the future. And I need something now. I want that PS5 now. So it's very easy to say, don't take the money out of my check for health insurance or life insurance. I want the PS5. But I do think, like you're saying, is you can make a case. But a lot of times it's a case about what might not happen or what gets easier if something goes wrong. And Arrogance can kick in of, oh, well, you know, we've never had that happen or we don't have that problem or if, if that happens, we'll address it then. But I think to use this as a segue to one of the topics I wanted to talk to you about is motivation and motivation is a, a big, huge word. And I'm not a certified coach to talk about life motivation. But so let me scope it down. <laughs> what is the connection of things like this and just anything to motivating people? on a team, whether they're building a product, whether they're a team of software developers, they're solving a problem, they're a team of lawyers inside a big law firm that wants to do more of the right work. They want to be more successful because, and let me tell you kind of how I'm getting to that with a segue is thinking about how do you motivate a software team to value testing as maybe an example and where you and I work together. We, I never felt like I had to convince anybody of that stuff. They were the ones I was learning from all the time, but I've been in other situations since then where I'm the one trying to maybe espouse the, the benefits of something for the future now. Yeah, no, that's a, you know, there's the, the book answer of motivation, right? Give people valuable things, whatever that thing is, right? If it's, if it's uh you know, world hunger for, for someone or access to cheap healthcare, right? Those are intrinsic motivators to a lot of people because they are altruistic in nature and they drive, right? A lot of that, like just self-motivation that I feel valuable in what I'm doing. But at the end of the day, even in companies like that, you still have to motivate the day to day. You got to motivate the month to month, the teams, everything else. And, and to me, uh, Truly, motivation comes into two parts. It comes down to safety, right? So the, the adage of psychological safety, because if you aren't in a safe environment, what motivates you to try harder? What motivates you to fail fast? What motivates you to learn? Take a chance, take a leap. You can't do those things. And so all of that motivation that we as humans, most humans, I will say, like to gravitate towards, there are some people who want to come in and check the box every day, right? Put the rubber stamp on the paper, move on to the next job and go home. But most people 
wants some sort of camaraderie, some sort of team bonding, some sort of collective ownership, right? That empowerment, autonomy, and psychological safety. If you can provide those things in a team while providing them some sort of top line direction, whether it's altruistic or not, typically those things will drive a team to execute well beyond any other team you've worked in. And that's not flowery language, right? Like altruistic motivation. Everybody wants to change the world, right? When it comes to doing software product management. Uh, but in reality, those are, right? Those are your golden goose. You have very few of those opportunities in your career, but you can provide value to somebody. So the way I do this is typically find your disenfranchised user group, whether it's internal, whether it's external, whether it's, you know, Susan who sits next to you in the cube to your left, it doesn't matter. Find the person who's the most disenfranchised and make them feel, your team feel that, feel that understanding of you're helping somebody. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, a third world population that's facing turmoil, right? You are helping in that case, right? You're helping Susan who's sitting right next door to you go home and not carry stress into their personal life, which could make them a better friend, better wife, better uh, anybody, right? Mom, cousin, sister, it doesn't matter. You can take that out, right? Everyone talks about you bring your work or your personal life to work. You bring your work life to personal. Mm -hmm. Like it's there, this is not a one directional path. And so truly motivating a team or a person really people to believe that what you're doing is important to somebody. It doesn't have to be everybody. Even if it's important to that one person, you've made somebody's life better. And if you can do that as a product person, you can do that as a leader, you can do that as a scrum master, a project, it doesn't matter, right? You don't have to have a title to make somebody feel like they're an important part of a team. But that's really what it comes down to is finding that empathy, creating a safe place for people to experiment, fail, be their authentic self, right? I mean, you, we saw it when we worked together. Uh, like it was, everybody could be themselves, right? You you came in grumpy. We, we'll pull you off to have a conversation. Like what's going on? Anything we could do to help you feel better, right? Like you're a person ultimately. We always joked, right? That's how we greeted each other. Hey humans, right. like you're all human at the end of the day. Uh, we all have our own things we need to work through, but that's really what drives teams I have found in the last 15 years is, is just getting that empathy and caring yeah. and you can move mountains. Mastering agility only works with organizations aligned with our values. And that's exactly why we are excited to work with our sponsor. Scrum Match is the free platform for professionals run by professionals. On Scrum Match, true Scrum Masters get hired by companies serious about the popular framework. The awesome people behind this platform have decades of experience, among them a professional scrum trainer for scrum.org. They've interviewed, trained, and coached hundreds of like-minded people, and they use this exact experience to make you stand out from the crowd and help you get in touch with companies looking for true scrum masters. So go to scrummatch.com and sprint to your dream job. Now, in large organizations like, I don't know, Accenture or any other really big corporations, it's easy to become a number or to not have an environment where you're truly able to to do that and, and to treat people as they are, like people. Uh, how do you typically deal with that? Because you seem to be very rigid and very 
direct on whatever you need and what you think is the best for your team. And you seem to believe in your own cause, which I really appreciate. And you stand for that. But at the same page, it's really easy for people to fall back in line and say, ah, oh, shit, I don't want to deal with these repercussions. <laughs> I, I have found at really large organizations, and I will say this, and I'm sure this will come somewhere on invite me in the dairy later. It's really hard to get fired from a job doing the right thing. If you're doing the right thing, even if it ruffles feathers, you might have a little bit harder of a go at it, but you're not like that fear, that wrist slapping, right? That, that fear that holds people back from putting their, their skin into that game. It's minimal, right? Like that at the end of the day, my team is being treated as a number, right? One of my big things I, I hate when people call people resources. Like it, it is like just something that irks me to the nth degree. And I'm like, that is a human. They are not a number on a spreadsheet. And I will call directors, VPs, and up on large meetings out on that. I will put it in a chat. I'll raise my hand and stop calling. Like, what are they going to tell me? I was rude. Actually, I wasn't. I was actually correcting your rude behavior. And so being that person to instigate that change isn't as hard as people think. It's just they have to realize, like, if you're doing this for the right reasons to drive team unity, to drive cohesion, to get people to feel like they're people and not a number, mm -hmm. right? It starts with you, right? Someone has to be that person. Um, and I can say with certainty, I mean, I haven't been fired yet. I'm sure it could happen. Uh, it could happen to anybody because we ultimately are numbers of, on a spreadsheet to somebody. And that's what I tell my team constantly is I'm going to act this way. Ultimately, we are a number on someone's ledger sheet. Mm -hmm. It's just the reality of corporations. That's how we exist. But that doesn't mean while we're here, we need to act that way. Right. Yeah. And that came up on my chat with Jeff. God help. Um, and he told how his company, through no fault of their own, they were doing amazing work, but they, you know, their client fixed the glitch and their, their contract ended abruptly. And it can happen to anybody. And it doesn't mean the people weren't doing good work. It doesn't mean, you know, there are ways to guard against it, which is a, get really good at showing value and, and, you know, kind of swallow your pride a little bit and do some humble self-promotion of the value you and the team and others are, are providing. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We're all cells and lines and columns in a spreadsheet somewhere. One of the, one of the really interesting things I'm remembering as as you're kind of talking about motivation is that team that where we work together, what one of the things that I remember doing was going shopping for snacks a lot. And I got a lot of crap for it. And we had a significant budget for the team area. And we blew that budget uh, on good snacks, jigsaw puzzles, uh, little tchotchkes occasionally, but no one questioned it. And when they did question it, they got shut down by other people because nobody questioned that team's effectiveness. Nobody questioned how happy the client was with the output and outcomes of the team. And other teams would ask for similar things, but they weren't in that spot, right? They So yeah, they, they got scrutinized a little differently. But I think that those little things are what shows people you're human. Like, yeah, you know, when I, when, when somebody forgot their breakfast, knowing that when they get to their desk, they're going to be able to throw a bowl of instant oatmeal in the, in the microwave because 
somebody had the forethought to budget 40 bucks a week for, for team snacks or whatever. And the other thing I heard through what you were saying is if you can connect people to why their work matters and, you know, in my, in my experience and Sunder and I've talked many times in other episodes about looking back at everywhere we've been, it's humbling. And it's been very easy to see what motivates people when I work with like some Silicon Valley companies or when you work with a game studio that's making a game that's going to be, it's going to sell, you know, a billion dollars and stuff. It's not so easy to connect for every team like that, that I've worked with, I've had 15 or 20 teams who are working on a global ERP implementation or an SAP implementation or a rewrite of the HR system. And those teams need those things just as much. They need to connect their work every day to this is how your work is making a difference. It's making this data more accurate so that we pay people more accurately or more timely, or it's it's making it easier for people to do something that has a benefit. And it, it's harder though. And that's when, when I first it's texted you about talking about motivation, one of the examples I was going to give you is kind of the thing you're living in, which is maybe you don't have a, a amazing world changing product. How do you motivate people to care about financial accuracy? more than some executive somewhere maybe going to jail if they do their job poorly. So do you have any examples? But I mean, that's, that's the people Mm -hmm. side of it, right? You know, getting to really shine a light on it, right? We, we in the development team, we, we know the pain of the system, right? We, we know the random calls on a Saturday at 6am because some mainframe job abended and didn't load, right? We, we know those problems, but what we don't always see is that same problem is impacting person A in our financial team, which sits right next door to us, right? We, we share a floor space with them. And so our business operations team is also getting a call at 6 a.m. on Saturday. Or we find this really weird process. We're like, well, we're just going to move it from old ERP to new ERP. It's no big deal. They're doing it today. But what we don't know or what we people just glossed over is that that's actually a person having to log in three times on a Saturday to run a report to kick it off. Mm -hmm. So that means that person can't take a vacation or if they do, they have to always have a computer. They've always got to be accessible to Wi-Fi. They've always got to find a backup. And so even if it's, you know, Financial accuracy is great, but honestly, it's motivating people by connecting them to another person, right? When you ultimately can put someone's face in front of them and say, hey, person A, like you screw up, they're coming into work tomorrow. Not you, because you can't fix it, but they have to manually correct something that we screwed up on. That's on your head. And, you know, it's getting them to see that there are real life impacts, even if it's not 60,000 users, it's not 2 million, 3 billion watch hours, right? It still doesn't matter, right? Somebody, even if it's singular, somebody having a better day because of what you did. And that really is, I know it's very like puppies and rainbows, but it really is what drives, you know, there's user empathy in everything we do as product, right? There's reasons why we talk about users and journey maps and experiences and personas. It's to get to that layer of empathy so we can build the right product at the right time for the right people. And without it, I mean, 
why are we doing anything while we're doing, right? Just make robots go do it all. And then we just show up and punch our buttons. But if we want to care, let's build good yeah. things. And Sunder, that's something I learned from Brendan and other people around us when we worked together was those type of things, user journey mappings. <clears throat> um, we had a lot of UI UX sessions with some of the best people I've ever worked with in my career to do things like customer personas. And we did focus groups and all that. And I... I, I love those experiences. But one of the things Brendan said a little bit ago that I want to come back to is the conversations you're having at whiteboards with markers. One of the most common phrases that I say through my client work is pictures, Trump words. And I will listen to a team, maybe in a refinement session or maybe in a, a planning session. They'll, they'll say a lot about a feature. And I'm like, guys, gals, can we go look at a picture? Does anybody have a diagram? Because, you know, it's not as easy when we're distributed in across six time zones to go walk up to a whiteboard with a marker. But in some respects, it's even easier. Like, and what one of the things, Brennan, and I would love to hear any tips you've got for the audience around this problem. But one of the things that I have told people is they hear me say something like, can we have a diagram or can you, we look at a picture? And I think many of them goes to like this beautiful high fidelity Figma thing that's clickable. And I'm, I'm like, no, no, no. I'm looking at rectangles, circles, and arrows. Like, let's start there as low fidelity as possible. Forget the arrows yeah. even, just a circle on a board even. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly it. So the tip I have for anybody who does this, and I have learned whiteboarding while facilitating is my sweet spot, right? That's my superpower. It's a very weird superpower, but it is got no applicability outside of work, but it is what it is. And that right there, if you can learn a skill and I, and, and I guarantee that this is a skill you learn over time. I learned a lot of it when, even when we work together, right. Getting to do these massive facilitations for stakeholders is you get good at facilitating and having to whiteboard. Uh, if you can do that digitally, even in a rudimentary fashion, right? Don't let the structure of what you're whiteboarding paralyze you with indecision. Don't let the, oh, it's got to be a pixel perfect mm -hmm. view in Figma or Miro or Mural or insert one of the other 75 whiteboarding tools. I honestly, to show people that a lot of times just open up an Excel document and I'm like, we don't even need arrows and diagrams. I'm just going to put a, what happens on, like I write step one and then just what do we do? Then I write step two. It's as simple as starting that conversation is all you really need. So getting something that you can all look at, most humans are visual learners. Very few people don't need something visual in front of them to learn. If you can learn everything you need through audiobooks, kudos. Mm -hmm. That is a wonderful skill set. Those people exist. They are not the norm, unfortunately. I think it'd be really cool. I suck at it personally. Um, but getting into that visual cue, right? You've got to be able to walk through because it makes you think like, well, if this flow is going here, now I can ask questions about the why. Why did that actually go that direction? Is that really the direction it even was supposed to go? Right. Um, but don't let perfection be your enemy. It can be as ugly as you want it to be. And I will tell you, even the ugly ones still look better than Yeah. Them. Well, I think I said on a previous <laughs> episode that drawings or pictures like this are like one of my old developers used to say, you know, documentation is like sex when it's bad. It's still better than nothing at all. And I mean, that's how <laughs> these pictures are. And just to add 
some of my own tips against um, yours, and then Sunder will go to you and see what tips you can add is, I learned a lot from getting a couple books on visual vocabulary. And what I would do is I would have those open and I just have cheap Sharpies and notebook paper and I would draw 15 coffee cups because I knew that every session I'm in, wherever we take a break, I might need to be able to draw a coffee cup in three strokes of a, of a marker. Uh, and I would draw arrows and lightning bolts and clouds and rectangles that were legible. Okay. And that's the thing. And like over 10 years ago, I had the joy of working with a woman named Karen and Karen's whiteboards were a thing of beauty. And Brendan's were too. Like, Sandra, I'll back him up. This is absolutely one of his superpowers. And at times he and I and others would fight for the markers because we had a group of people who were kind of visual facilitators like this. And I'm by no means an artist. I mean, I'm stick figures and arrows and stuff, but I've, I've been complimented on the readability and the value of these things is, but Karen taught me how to create legible things and how to kind of capture things as other people were talking. So if, if drawing or documenting visually isn't their superpower, that's fine. Just ask them questions, interrogate them a little bit in a friendly way. And then when they give you an answer, draw it and connect two things and be like, does this thing talk to this thing? Yeah. Okay. And you draw an arrow and I'm like, is it a bi-directional or, or single direction? And they're like, well, bi-directional. Okay. Now I'm drawing two arrows. And then you can see their demeanor change and you can see the light bulbs go off and they're like, oh, now that I can see what's in my own head on that big whiteboard, they will come up and grab the marker and feel more confident making it even better, right? And then the last tip I'll give you before I turn over to Sunder to add, because I know he's a big believer in this through all his work, uh, teaching and workshops is colors. One of the, the things that people said is, why did you choose that color? And I'm like, well, everything red you're looking at means this, and blue is this product, and green is this product. And then you can start to make an even more robust picture out of RGB markers and because you're telling something in more than one, one way. Yep. Yeah. You already get almost a two-dimensional layer right. to it. Or three dimension, I guess, with you added color. So, yeah, and it, it creates alignment as well. Like I've been doing this exercise in my PSPO class today, where they have to, like, individual teams have to draw out what they think that the product vision is, and which is what you'll see quite often is that people have a very different understanding. Where if you would just plenary ask them, like, is the vision clear to everyone? And everyone just nods their head, afraid to speak up, afraid to say or to, to look stupid in front of the crowd. But if when, when they draw stuff out, a they're going to be a lot more engaged and more involved, and they they can work their uh, their hands and, and visual appealing, and it's it's a whole different dynamic in general, anyway. But you'll see that there are minor tweaks in the understanding of people when they have the product vision. That's where you start to have a conversation around it. So. It's not just the visual learner part, but it's also a catalyst for a deeper conversation about, hold on, I thought we just said this, but apparently we mean this. Yeah, we mean the same thing, or there there's some difference here. And if we're going to do this, then maybe we can do this as well. You start to see this, this conversation flow immediately, and the backlog starts building and it creates better ideas, or the other way around. All right, if we're going to do this, then we got to chip out or uh, chop out other certain areas of the of our product backlog so how do we deal with that yeah so i i really love the the whole visual thinking and uh 
I'm a big big fan of Neuland, of the the marker sets and the, the whole uh, visual uh, facilitation kit. Uh, my colleagues Lawrence Bonema and Rachel van van Hoven, just by heart, they are amazing at doing this stuff. What they can do with it with just a pen and a few colors, it's 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 mind boggling. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a skill I wish I owned. Yeah, and I know it's the time of year when a lot of people are thinking about professional development and look at some of these visual facilitation classes. There's the, and I'll probably butcher the pronunciation, the, the Bika Blow method that you can find trainers for. There's yeah. a company out of Chicago called Ink Factory that I follow that that does small workshops about this. And you would be shocked at how some very simple tips that you can learn in two hours from the comfort of your home around things like shading and how to hold a marker and how to write text and draw boxes can drastically improve the quality, which is your perceived quality and your effectiveness to convey complex things in simple languages. Um, One of the other techniques to talk, uh, just to throw out there to see if either of you have used this, that I learned from Karen as well, is I'll never forget, we had a team with a very UI, UX heavy app that was uh, open to the general public. And she was trying to convey to the, some of the developers some gaps she saw in the user interface. And she it wasn't getting through in conversation. So she printed out a bunch of screenshots, taped them up to a wall and said, see, if you click this, it opens this page. And then you type this in and hit enter and it takes you to this page. And then look, now you're in a dead end. You've basically just done the equivalent of driving down a random street in the suburbs that ends in a cul-de-sac. Now, now if I'm a user, what do I do? And the team loved it because they could go stand in front of their app and kind of walk a user journey. And they could then see like, oh man, if I'm on this screen, I don't know where the hell to go from here. Or what do we want? And so many amazing things came out of that. Um, I'm curious, is this something that either of you have done? Yeah, that's that's some magic that again I'm going to refer to my PSPO A course because apparently there are a lot of there's a lot of stuff that I can refer to into that today. Uh, but the whole visualization stuff is it's it makes conversations and linking stuff together so much easier. Where they're building a product wall, like a visual product wall, and what they had to do is create impact mapping. So starting from a goal and then go through some personas and impacts and outcomes and features and I don't know what not. And they had to do some more assignments, build product visions and uh, some storytelling. And because they had visualized this whole mapping, the the whole impact mapping of the personas that they were creating and the outcomes that were trying to achieve and the company goals that that they were trying to achieve, they were immediately able to refer a lot of the assignments afterwards to this. We had our product vision over here, but we're trying to link this up to or we're trying to do something. And we had our uh, impact mapping created our company vision together. And it flows perfectly. But if we're going to do that, that means that for this type of persona, we can do another feature as well, create more outcome and, and make their lives even easier. If they hadn't done that, if they hadn't created that visual stuff on a whiteboard or put it on the wall, they would have never seen that link because it's out of their minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brendan, what do you think? Yeah. 
I, uh, I actually, when I first came into the, the, where you replaced me on the project, when I first waltzed into that, that's exactly what we did. <laughs> we actually, in the adjacent room, we printed out every single screen of that application that we were building or wanted to build. We were very early mm-hmm. in the phase. And I, for those of you who don't know it, the King Sharpie, the, the massive fat King Sharpie smells uh, I mean, it is just, you can, as soon as you crack that cap open, everybody in the office knows someone's using a King Sharpie. <laughs> we handed those things out and said, just start walking the board. How do these things connect? If they don't connect to the, and having a main journey designation, what connects to that main journey? If it doesn't connect, go X out the entire like just giant X on it. We were able to use it for thin slicing activities. You're able to use it for story mapping. You're able to use it for journey mapping. You're able to identify different components that own that might connect or might not connect. We actually had a dead link that actually came up because of that. Mm-hmm. Same thing is you could get into a billing path in a weird one-off scenario, but then you couldn't ever come back mm-hmm. out. And so those things help and it's visual learning in its finest, right? And whether it's screens, whether it's in strategy, uh, representing connective flows, whether it's information, whether it's data, whether it's journeys, right? We're all we're all linear. Is humans are linear in nature, right? We we are we we go on a path, right? Um, except we'll always kind of circle back if we're not careful, <laughs> but we're always trying to go down a path. Uh, which gets me into whole fun ruts and, and groove conversation. But the idea is you got to keep people seeing where those connected data points are, whether it's, like I said, true data, whether it's behavior-based, whether it's strategy-based, because you can't see oftentimes what's around that first bend unless you've got somebody there guiding it visually. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a reason why MapQuest was a thing. There's a reason why atlases still exist, right? Um, we are visual. We like to see where we're going and see how we're going to get to places and, can't do that without visuals. Yeah. And one of the other things I tell people is it's easier than ever before to not have to guess at these things. Like you can buy free tools, wire them into your app pretty easily and know where users are going and where they're stuck and where they're abandoning your card or whatever. And back when I started doing this, we had to guess, we had to watch people, we had to ask them. We, it was a lot harder. It's not so hard anymore to do that. Um, So let's change gears just a little because all the stuff we're talking about, like it, it, when in my consulting work and and when I train and this year has been much heavier on the doing than the teaching for me, but um, that comes up a lot is when we talk about things like roadmaps and strategy and user persona, this and visual facilitation, most product people I know are like, yes, those are all the things I want to do. And I said, what's keeping you from doing them. And they say, well, I have leaders breathing down my neck, asking me for status updates on this and they're jamming more features in. And I got nine stakeholders that all want more and more and more. So that's, you know, kind of the reality a lot of people find themselves in. So how do you, like, what are questions you're getting, Brennan, that maybe if you let them could distract you from these things? Like what, what are you getting from, maybe leadership or stakeholders, whether it's metrics or visuals or updates, any or status meeting yeah, requests. Stuff like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I I'm laughing cause I had to feel that actually last week where um, a senior director core asked our team why I asked for a status, a weekly status meeting 
and I don't see it. Can you get that set up? And my reply was, no, I won't. If what you want is status, here's the JIRA board. You can go get that yourself. And I said, we are a very busy team having a 30-minute meeting or an hour-long meeting every week where three people pay attention is not a value add to anybody's time. That conversation died instantly because when you lay it out, and I'll, I'll use this anecdotally, uh, it's a very true story, but we have a, a month or a weekly PMO meeting, huge program, right? There's like 200 people on this product, like huge. So I, project status, totally understandable, right? There's too many moving parts for leadership to get a cohesive view offline. The way we were doing it was exhausting for teams involved, for presenters, for most of the stakeholders even in it, because they only needed snippets of that giant presentation. One of my uh, key senior leadership asked me, um, or asked, like, what's the point of it? And, and they said, well, you know, I like to read through that. I like to have come into the meeting, have people walk me through it. And I looked him dead in the eyes and I said, can you read? <laughs> um and I wasn't joking. Like it was very serious. Like, but you're paying how many thousands of dollars basically for that meeting. So people can read to mm -hmm. you. That is not productive. That is not value add in anybody's book. So I get it. It's hard, right? Sometimes there's a comfort level, right? As a personality wise, like that's just my style. Like I will I like to say vote with my feet. Vote with your feet doesn't mean not going, right? But it means putting them in the right direction so that if a meeting comes in, you can adequately refute it. Or say in this case, hey, we're actually having a demo next week. Next week is going to walk you through what you want from a project status, also gaining feedback of what we're building. So what would you rather have? Would you rather have a status meeting for an hour or a demo where we can actually get feedback? Oh, I'd rather have a demo. Cool. That's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I find a lot of time leadership gets stuck in, you know, and I, and I say this uh, to a lot of people I coach is leaders are just people, right? Like they're, they're still a person at the end of the day, right? They're going to make decisions based off past experiences. They're going to make decisions how they got into the position they're in, right? They're going to carry with them all of those previous experiences. And when you're in an enterprise that does things very rigidly, it's very easy to, Sandra, your point, right? Make those conscious, like even subconscious decisions to kind of slide your standard throughout time. I think anybody should feel empowered to question those, right? What purpose does this thing have compared to doing this other thing? And a lot of times I hate to say it, but the proof is in the pudding, right? You got to go demonstrate the value of these tools. Sometimes that means you do have to burn a little bit of extra time on your own to showcase this, right? Actually, just last week at a huge presentation, I worked a little, and I hate working weekends. I worked over the weekend a little bit to prep for it and get the facilitation guide down that I wanted to walk through, the style I wanted to tell. Uh, that thing swirled for three weeks at senior leadership. We knocked it down in an hour. We got alignment from five different departments and everybody now is on board with the approach and including in that is a lot of visual tooling that we used to showcase. And so now people are asking, well, hey, can you teach me how to use that? And so 
it's not the perfect answer. There's no magic. Like I can't just flip the switch and leaderships are going to instantly believe in all these new tools and approaches, but take some time to, to showcase it, to demo it in a real life situation where you're having disagreement, where you're having disjointed conversations, right? Pull visual tooling into place, pull road mapping, right? A lot of, and I will say this, most of people, I don't say everybody, but most people think of a roadmap as either a Gantt chart or a now, next, later, right? Those are kind of the two major thematic buckets Mm -hmm. of roadmaps. But roadmaps are just a story of telling you where you want to go. It's a communication tool that should be morphed to the audience, right? I tell a lot of times I coach product people, they're like, well, how many roadmaps should, should I have? As many as it takes. Your job in product is to sell where you're going which is a sales job. Do you think a salesperson has one trick up their sleeve to go close a deal? Absolutely not. They've got an armament of ideas, of tools to go after. That's our job. Go sell Mm -hmm. your product, go sell your problems and solutions, have different tools, have different ways of presenting, right? Getting that storytelling aspect is really what brings leadership challenges to a grinding halt. Ultimately, you're still in a machine. And so, right, there's sometimes we have to learn to just go like, is the intent of what they're asking for the same intent I'm doing it, but maybe I want it to look like this and they want it to look like this. Sure. Like it's possible, but that you have to take that humble approach too to say like, is it really my pride that wants to do it this way? Or is the outcome still going to be the same if I acquiesce and do it a different way? Um, So focus on outcomes. And then, I mean, really just challenge them, right? Like challenge preconceived notions, have the, Say it in a fun way, but have the hard conversations about why are you asking for this right now? Above everything else, why is this important? Right. So what tooling, you mentioned visual tooling and roadmaps and all that. Um, One of the biggest questions I get is, okay, that's good. What? What are your go-to tools that you'd recommend? Oh, I loved Miro. And it just got taken away from me and uh, got uh, replaced by Fig Jam. And jam, uh, big jam board, mm-hmm. um, which it's fine. It does most of the same stuff. Um, I've, I've been in all of them, right. For a stint, I had to use nothing but draw IO. And so you can use any tool. So my go-to right now is fig jam out of necessity. Uh, up until then I paid for a personal mirror license to give you an idea of how often I use that just mm-hmm. in general conversations. Um, but he really, and I, I can't stress this enough. The tool is a tool. It's exactly it. Uh, it is not the answer. Mm-hmm. You can get the answer in any tool you have access to. If you have access to PowerPoint, do it in PowerPoint. It might be a little clunkier, but you can totally do road mapping and visual story to PowerPoint. You can do it in Excel, right? Excel, throw in a shape. You can add arrows, right? Like it doesn't matter. The tool helps, right? It speeds things up, but ultimately, can you tell the story with the tools you're presented? I mean, I, yeah, we call it in my house, gardener ingenuity. I will take and slap things together that have no right being together, but it works. They might not be the right tools to get to there, but the outcome gets. Yeah. Cheap. Well, Sunder came and stayed with me and we talked a lot about redneck. So he's talking about redneck <laughs> engineering Sunder because zip ties yes. and duct tape <laughs> fix a lot of things, but Exactly. You know, the guyvering. Yeah. I mean, just yes. to provide a little bit of counter, I, I, it's not that I disagree with you, but what I have found is 
there are tools like if you try and use uh, I I've hammered in nails with the bottom of a power drill before, right? I'm sure that most handymen have done that out of frustration at some point or the other. But yes. there will come a point where if the tool is not fit for the job, you're not going to want to use it. And any tool that you Correct. don't use, I don't care if it's the most expensive, beautiful tool or if it's a if it's a cheap one or you know if it's Word or Notepad or something. So first use it, but then I do think that as you do higher quality That's work and as more things are at stake, the quality of the tooling matters a little bit. Um, but it, start free though. Yeah. There are so many free options out there that, you know, getting a business case for a Miro license or an enterprise grade license for one of these tools is astronomical in cost. Yeah. There are a thousand free options you can get to that do most of those functions. And so I, I love that, Jim, and I think that's spot on, right? That you, it, what I said works, but there is a time when it stops. Yeah. And you do need to kind of get the right tool for the job, but don't let that – same with visual storytelling that we talked about at the beginning, right? Don't let perfection be the enemy of starting, right? Mm -hmm. Use the tool you have, figure out if it can do the job, and if it can't, then you learn – just like we fail fast, right? You learn and try something different. Yeah, I mean, I have a friend who's a crappy golfer and he has a $2,500 <laughs> set of golf clubs. So tools don't make the person, but there will come a point where tools can hold you back. And and I used to work with somebody who wanted to create whiteboards and visuals like I do. And, they, and they're like, well, I don't have the right markers yet. And I'm ordering it. I'm like, it's not about the marker. Like just use any old crappy <laughs> marker on the floor. But as your skills improve and as you're telling more and more important stories to more and more people, you're going to want to maybe consider, am I investing my time and money in the right way? Because if it takes you four hours to do something in PowerPoint, or it takes you 30 minutes in Miro or Mural or whatever, it's probably in everybody's best interest for you to have a better tool. But I cannot agree enough with you saying, just start free, start with what's there, and then go, you know, then get creative. Then you'll kind of nerd out and You'll, you'll find whatever your right tool is for your workflow. But we're, we're almost at time. I do want to come back to one thing and just make a point um, about you being asked about a status update. Is I've been asked this a lot. Like a uh, certain stakeholder, certain leader or executive will say, I just want a 30-minute update every two weeks. And I have also done what you've done and said, no, but let me get you what you need. Or what is it that you really need? Or what are you concerned about? And then let me address that. And a few of them have pushed back over the years and said, it's just 30 minutes. And I said, right, for you, it's 30 minutes. But I know the team is going to spend four or five hours prepping for the 30 minutes because of your position in the company. You're going to maybe make a couple people on the team give up their evenings. And you're one of five people. So if I take that investment and I multiply that 30 minutes by four or five, now you this is why the team might not be getting as much work done. And they're like, well... I never told them to do a meeting for so-and-so. I'm like, you didn't, but they asked, they're a leader that, you know, and that's kind of the thing is you redirecting them to say, I would love you to come to this other session where you're not only going to get what you need, but you're going to get a lot more. And that I think is, is a great, you know, Aikido um, move there to kind of redirect their energy and attention to make it a more positive thing instead of just getting ground down by all these little ad hoc requests. Yep. And I think you're spot on is if there's a reason, right? That people 
I've yet to meet a single person who loves status reports. <laughs> um, so there's a reason they're looking for something, right? Either they've been hearing complaints in their, you know, if in, in our world inside of a finance platform, right? Our senior business leadership could be hearing complaints from the local SMEs who are helping us validate test scenarios, right? Like they could be going all the way around up at a chain. Well, what is that? What are you hearing? What's that? Like, let's address the concerns that are causing you to feel like this is a, a value add of time because almost like guaranteed it's not a value add of time. And in a five minute conversation with somebody, we could address those concerns and move yeah. on or get information in a different way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, asking those every time a product person or a scrum person or a project person, right, asking those questions is just, you have to ask questions. Don't ever accept anything at face value because there's almost always some sort of intrinsic motivator pushing something. You got to find yeah, it. I I had a, a senior leader at a big petroleum company and I they were asking their team for these status updates. And I, I asked him one-on-one when it was just he and I chatting, I go, why do you need this from them? And he's like, well, I need it because if I'm in my meeting with my boss's boss, I need to be able to pull it out of my email or open it up on SharePoint and give an update so that I don't look. And I said, okay, how often do you look at what the team puts together for you? He said, eh, maybe 10% of the time. I said, okay. And how often are you in a meeting with your boss or your boss's boss where you've got to pull up this PowerPoint or this Excel spreadsheet? And he said, you know, maybe 10% of the time. So if you, if you look at that, it's 1% of the team's effort that is coming to fruition because it's 10% of 10%. And I said, now, how many teams do you have? Well, 17 teams. Okay. Now we can see some of the problem is, yes, there is a need behind that, but there are better ways to solve it for everybody involved um, than to ask a whole bunch of people to give up hours and weekends and nights every every week, every two weeks, every month, whatever for something that may happen 1% of the time. Um, Never hurts to ask the question. Right. And, and as I tell people all the time, like ask the question, what what's the worst thing that's going to happen? They say, we have to do it. Okay. Right. Be pragmatic. Like not the data, not the hill to die on mm -hmm. today. Get it done. Try again next time. Right. If you keep that same cadence of questions and drivers for change, they will happen. Change does not happen with a swooping action, right? You can't just whoosh, all of a sudden, our organization's going to change. It's microtransactions every day that drive organizational change. And you have to be able to keep that pressure going and keep pushing every day to see that happen. But trust me, when you look backwards on those things, that's when you notice the real changes taking There's place. There's an after a while. If you keep on asking these kind of questions, they will come to you prepared. Like Yes. I, I need to go to Brendan. I'm going to ask him again for the status update or whatever. And I know he's going to keep asking me on why or whatever, or, you know, this, the same questions. And I, I need to come prepared because I don't want to deal with these questions all the time. Yeah. Well, th there's an entire episode in what you just said about this, this micro transactions and nudges, right? So many people want this change or organizational transformation to be seen as a you know, you're turning the Titanic on a dime and it's not like it's, it's a small amount of 
of change constantly. It's building a habit of change. And yes, there are times where we have to do a hard pivot and basically reset our course, but then it goes right back to nudges again and small improvements that get us there. Mm -hmm. But those aren't the things that make for amazing PowerPoints or TED Talks or whatever. And it, it, you know, I think we build change up into this really big thing that we're going to like hang our hat on for our entire career. And the sad truth is most of us, it's not going to happen, but we still can make huge differences through all these nudges all the time. So I want to start wrapping up. Um, Brennan, anything to say uh, as we, as we wrap up, just whether it's about the chat we've had or just your own network and and needs in general? Just generally, I would say to all product people, especially with the market downturn that we've seen over the last year uh, in product specifically, and even in some companies making some drastic, like, Hey, we're going to just kind of nix product completely products job function, whether it's a titled role or not exists, the needs we provide companies exist. Don't get hung up on the title, get hung up on the value you can provide your team, your department, your customers, your enterprise stakeholders, right? You will always have work to do. Don't get so stuck in a box that you can't see that there is no box. Uh, we, we just do it, right? Like we're all work. We all work for a living, um, right? Is that we're out here because we want to work so we can do other fun stuff. So let's find the motivation you need to do that, but don't let stuff like that weigh you down. Cause I, I can't tell you how many times I've run into, especially junior product people getting into this role now, and they see stuff like this happening. They're like, what did I just do? We existed before this in different entities, right? Sometimes you were called online business managers. Sometimes you were called product analysts. Sometimes you were called a business analyst. Come, Sometimes you were called like a technical, technical uh, business specialist. That's a weird one I've seen in a few places, but like, the idea of what we provide a company exists is doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. So don't get stuck on like doing something that's not a traditional product management job, because I can guarantee in five years, what you think is traditional today is not traditional in five years. So don't fret it. Just be pragmatic, roll up your sleeves, find some way to provide value, be a good person, Work will work will work. Right, man. Th- I think there's I the title that. of this episode. We're gonna have to figure that out. It's it's either like um, just add value or um, don't <laughs> don't get stuck inside the box so much you re- realize there is no box. I love that idea. Um, Sunder, any last words of wisdom as we as we wrap up? I never have any words of wisdom, dude. Any any other just. Uh, non-wisdom fueled words to share (laughs) (laughs) um no i've got my 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 head running on all these things and i'm not sure where to to put all of that fair enough Uh, yeah i need to think about these awesome well um yeah i mean for me i think uh for me it's less words more pictures and I love having chats with with people that are out there being pragmatic practitioners like Brendan and uh, I know that there's going to be a lot of value that our listeners can take away from this conversation, and hopefully they can take a couple nuggets out, start applying it right away, and make their own lives a little better. So thanks, everyone. Yep. 
Thanks, everyone. Find Thank me you, on Brennan. LinkedIn if you have questions. I will gladly answer. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, we'll put you. We'll put your LinkedIn uh, in the in the show notes. So if people want to connect yeah. with you, yeah, I'm always happy to help answer questions if anybody's got them. Awesome. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility Podcast.